Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we've got a really thrilling show for you today. We are taking it back to something we used to do and haven't done for a long time. In fact, we haven't done it in years, which is a pro-con debate. We are going to have two amazing guests who are going to duke it out about whether or not to use an indwelling labor epidural if a woman goes for an unscheduled C-section. So imagine you have a a woman in labor, she has an epidural, using it for labor, and then she has to go unexpectedly for C-section. Do you take that out and do a different neuraxial technique, or do you go ahead and try to use that indwelling epidural? That is our debate. And to have this debate, we have two fantastic guests who have been on the show before. Frequent listeners will know them both. First, we have Dr. Mike Hofkamp, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Baylor College of Medicine and the OB division director at Baylor Scott & White in Temple, Texas. And we have Dr. Emily Sharp, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and the director of the fellowship program in obstetric anesthesiology there. Two fabulous guests, and both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. All right, we are going to have this debate, and it's going to be really interesting. We're going to have both sides presented, and then at the end, we'll have some back and forth, and you'll have a chance to do a little rebuttal of each other. So, Mike, we're going to start with you, and I believe you're going to take the stance that, when possible, you should remove the indwelling epidural and go for a different new, or not necessarily different, but a new second attempt at a different um, neuraxial technique. Tell us why you think that's the way to go. Well, thank you for having us on the show, Jed. I appreciate the opportunity. So, uh, Dr. Sharp and I, we did a great podcast last year that you hosted for us. We talked about inadequate regional anesthesia for cesarean delivery. And a lot of our uh, inadequate regional anesthesia in our hospital, I think most hospitals, comes with these unscheduled intrapartum cesarean deliveries. We have a labor epidural in place. And so just to kind of recap the the concerns about inadequate regional anesthesia, Kelts and colleagues found that 11.9% of patients with apparently adequate anesthesia reported pain during cesarean delivery, and that we were very bad at judging whether they were in pain or not. The false negative rate was uh, 82.6% for obstetricians, and the anesthesiologist's false negative rate was 52.2%. Dr. Sharp and I, we did a study together with one of my former OB residents, we did a prospective survey study uh, for pain during cesarean delivery and for not even for intrapartum, but cesarean deliveries, but cesarean deliveries with combined spinal epidural or single injection spinal, 22.7% of those patients in our study reported some kind of pain or discomfort during cesarean delivery. And so I think that the problem is probably much worse for intrapartum cesarean delivery. We know from our evidence that it's difficult to convert labor epidural analgesia to surgical anesthesia. If you want to think about the pathophysiology of it, you are putting a labor ep- you put an epidural catheter into what is presumed to be the epidural space without the use of fluoroscopy or any kind of objective confirmation. You are leaving that catheter in a patient for sometimes hours upon end, and now you need to do a surgical procedure, it's a laparotomy while someone's awake, and you're going to hope that you inject medicine through this hopefully well-placed catheter, and you hope that the local anesthetic is going to distribute 
in this anatomically correct spot and you're going to get good spread enough to create conditions that are suitable for a laparotomy. And so it's a very difficult task to achieve. Bauer and colleagues did a study where they looked at risk factors for failed conversion. And what they found was that urgency of the procedure, the number of physician-administered rescue boluses during labor, and a non-obstetric anesthesiologist providing care contributed to the risk of failure of this anesthetic technique. And so other authors have investigated this and said, well, you know, is it better to remove the labor epidural and start anew? And so Yoon at all in South Korea ran, did a randomized control trial. They took people who had labor epidural analgesia ongoing and randomized them to either have activation of that labor epidural or to have uh, with a removal and a spinal anesthetic placed. And in the spinal group, only 2.5% had pain. And so pain was judged by the need for supplementation of intravenous fentanyl. This is in contrast to uh, patients who had activation who needed 15.3% of these patients needed intravenous fentanyl. So clearly the patients who had the uh, the removal followed by spinal were more comfortable. And it's quite possible that even it had an even bigger impact than just the fact that some people needed fentanyl and some did not. So Dr. Sharp and I recently published a study last month where we did a retrospective propensity-matched study where we propensity-matched patients based on the number of physician-administered boluses and the obstetric indication for uh, cesarean delivery. We got 124 patients in each cohort, and we looked what happened to whether or not they got uh, uh, an, an anesthetic adjunct, either IV fentanyl, uh, inhaled nitrous oxide. And we found that the odds ratio of adjunct free anesthesia for the remove and do a new technique was 4.3. And so our study was far from perfect, but I think we addressed the limitations that we could using the retrospective nature of our, of our data. Now, another thing is that I can't prove this, but anecdotally, my obstetric colleagues have told me that the muscle relaxation is much better when we remove the labor epidural and do a spinal-based technique. They say it's a lot easier to do the case. They say it's almost like doing an elective repeat cesarean delivery. Now, my old attending at your institution, Dr. Bob Greenberg, he is developing a monitor that will test the density of a block. Uh, and I am looking forward to that particular device being introduced into practice. It's not FDA approved. It's just used for research now. But I think that might uh, shed some more light on this issue. Now, of course, there are limitations to my, my approach. I will not remove the labor epidural catheter and try new technique under the following circumstances. Number one, patient preference. If the patient says that they don't want another neuroaxial technique, I will honor those wishes and I will either do a general or I'll try to activate the catheter or I'll do general if the catheter activation doesn't work. Secondly, if there's not enough time to do a second neuroaxial technique, if the, the obstetricians say, you know what, we got to go now. You got one chance to make this work with an activation. Otherwise, we got to go off to sleep because the baby is looking bad. You know, I'm not going to uh, jeopardize the, the safety of the patient or the neonate uh, to do this technique. Uh, or if it's if it was exceedingly hard to place the labor epidural initially. So if it took the most senior attending in the hospital uh, an hour with ultrasound guidance to place this epidural, I'm sure not going to try to do it myself at 8 o'clock at night when I'm short-staffed. So I take all those considerations in mind. So I don't always do this technique, but I have a preference to do it when I have time and the patient's amenable to it. Other limitations of this is that 
there is a non-zero incidence of an inability to get a second interaction. So in me and Dr. Sharp's study, three of 124 patients, uh, we were unable to get a, a second interaxial technique because of the retrospective nature of, this, of the data. We don't know how much the urgency of the procedure influenced that decision, but that's a, a clear limitation. And there's a non-zero incidence of dyspnea or a high spinal. When you do a spinal injection after the epidural space has been pressurized with labor epidural analgesia, there is a possibility that you could get a high level that necessitates intubation. And Dr. Sharp's study and I, we, we found um, one patient out of 124 uh, had that complication, and we're investigating that further this summer with retrospective data from three years of all cesarean deliveries. And so, um, in conclusion, I think that you get superior analgesia each and every time with a second neuraxial technique after removal of a labor epidural catheter, but it has to be done judiciously. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, I have a couple of questions. So, one, just to make sure everyone understands, you said that the false negative rate uh, amongst obstetricians for detecting pain in a patient uh, having a C-section was 82%. So just to make sure we understand, that means that obstetricians said they don't have any pain, and 82% of the time that was incorrect. They did have pain. Is that right? Correct. And Correct. then 52% for anesthesiologists, same thing. They said that no pain, the patient doesn't have any pain, but actually the patient did have pain. Correct. So in other words, obstetricians are much worse than anesthesiologists, but all of us get this wrong a lot. And so people are having pain, and we discussed that uh, with the two of you in, in the podcast we did on um, unnecessary pain during uh, during C-section um, or undetected pain. So, all right. Now, let me ask a couple of specifics. I remember, it's been a long time since I've done OB anesthesia, but I remember that when I was a resident, we used to talk about if you had just tried topping up your epidural, right? So you give... 10 cc's and it doesn't work, then there was this whole question of now, what do you do? Do you do a spinal, but what dose? If you give a regular dose, it's my understanding is it's more likely to be a high spinal. So now you're not advocating trying using the epidural and then giving the spinal. You're just saying, take it out. But let's just say that, you know, the woman had some pain in labor. She just got a bolus dose and then boom, bradycardia, got to go to C-section. Does that affect your decision there? Do you still do a spinal? If so, do you decrease your dose? So I am much, much, much more hesitant to do a spinal after I have tried to activate a labor epidural. So Dr. Sharp and I have a mutual friend and colleague, as as you do too, Dr. Mark Rollins, who I debated at the ASA in person on this very topic. And I took what I would most consider to be the more difficult position of saying, yeah, you should try it. So... I am much less enthusiastic to try a spinal after I've given 10 cc's or more through the epidural space. Now, if the patient is highly motivated to accept the risks of a high spinal and the surgeons are on board and she is a, they are a uh, easy appearing airway, I will consider it. I can tell you that my end, my career is three. I've done that in that situation. They've all worked out fine, but it was a white-knuckle experience to, to do it. So I am much, much more hesitant in that situation to, uh, to do it. And I will say that the epidural space is extremely variable from one patient to another, just based on the complexities of the anatomy. And so there has not been a study, to my knowledge, that has correlated height, weight, BMI, with epidural volume and effect of loading medication in the epidural space, just because it's so variable from one patient to another. Okay. So how about this? Let's say you do a CSE for, for labor for a patient, and then they've got to go to C-section. Does that change it or no? Does that change your decision or no? Uh, it really doesn't. Be, I, would check, I always check a level, a dermatomal level, before I do this because – I need to know if the level's up to T4, for instance, before I'm going to put in a, a spinal anesthetic. But the uh, I always do a low-dose CSE for my uh, – when I'm removing labor epidural catheters and doing a secondary axial technique, 
if the patient is what I call of normal body uh, stature and habitus, like five three, five four, and above, I'll give one point two milliliters of hyperbaric, zero point seven five percent bupivacaine, and if they're shorter than that, I'll give one point zero. And my preference is to thread an epidural catheter to provide either epidural volume extension through hydrostatic pressure or just de novo anesthesia with 2% lidocaine. So um, I'm always going on the lower side and giving myself the option to dose up the epidural additionally as needed. Okay. But if a patient had already received a CSE and you were going to then take out that epidural and do a spinal, you would still do your same technique? I probably would because the CSE is an analgesic dose and not an anesthetic dose. Typically, we're given a 0.25% bupivacaine or 0.125% bupivacaine, and this is meant to be an analgesic and not a surgical dose. And it's the same reasoning why it's still worthwhile to do an epidural catheter test dose after doing a CSE because uh, 45, microgram, or 45 micrograms of lidocaine in the, in the, uh, in the or 45 milligrams of lidocaine in the intrathecal space is going to give you a pretty good motor block that's going to be different than the CSE dose you just gave. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Hofkamp. Let's turn to Dr. Sharp. And Dr. Sharp, you are going to talk about uh, or argue that, in fact, Dr. Hofkamp is wrong and we should be trying to use this indwelling labor epidural. Why do you think that? All right. Well, yes, I, well, I want to start off by saying that I agree with um, Dr. Halfcamp that pain during cesarean delivery is uh, underestimated and misunderstood. And this is a passion of mine that we really need to better understand what, um, what the causes are and really um, understand women's experiences um, with interoperative pain, which is why this is probably the second time we're here talking about this. Um, and the, in, in addition to all, um, you know, the evidence that um, Dr. Hafkamp had presented, we also have to think about um, that pain during cesarean delivery leads to maternal dissatisfaction, um, PTSD, and it's also a leading cause of litigation in OB anesthesia and has surpassed um, awareness under general anesthesia in uh, litigation claims. And so um, it's incredibly important for us to be aware of uh, the pain that our patients are having during cesarean delivery and that we need to um, appropriately uh, treat it and listen to our patients. Um, but if we have a patient with a functioning epidural catheter, I do not believe that we should remove the catheter um, for an intrapartum cesarean delivery. And I really would say that activating a functioning labor epidural catheter is really considered the standard of care among OB anesthesiologists. Um, in my practice, and I think in many practices, we frequently advocate for epidural labor analgesia for patients who are at high risk for intrapartum cesarean delivery um, so that a de novo anesthetic is not required at that time. We'll talk to patients um, who have a difficult airway, who are obese, um, some of our, um, you know, patients with other um, um disease processes, and we'll encourage them to get an epidural so that if they did go to C-section that we could utilize that. Um, if you even look at the ASA practice guidelines for OB anesthesia, they recommend this practice of getting epidurals into patients so that we can utilize them for C-sections. When I consent a patient for their labor epidural, part of my consent process actually states, you know, one of the benefits of having an, a, a good working epidural in place is if we had to go for cesarean delivery, we could use that epidural to give you medication for the anesthesia for your C-section. Um, so it's, in, you know, but I do think it's really important for us, just as um, Dr. Hofkamp had um discussed. You know, if you look at uh, Dr. Bauer's study where she looks at uh, the factors that influence difficulty in converting to surgical anesthesia, one of the things that she looks at with an odds ratio of 3.2 is the number of supplemental labor analgesia boluses. And so we have to make sure that these epidurals are working. We're going to take the time to place an epidural. We need to, um, you know, pay careful attention to labor analgesia and recognize early a failed epidural. 
Some other things that we can consider is catheter manipulation. Um, one study actually showed that 85% of failed epidural catheters can be successfully converted to surgical anesthesia by withdrawing the um, epidural catheter by one centimeter. And it's also important for us to um, communicate with our obstetric colleagues, watch the pedal heart rate tracings, um, and so that we can um, be able to manage our patients. We don't just place epidurals and then ignore everything else that's going on, um, on the, on, you know, as part of their course. If the obstetric team conveys um, concern that a patient's more likely to undergo a cesarean delivery, um, I'm in the, the room. We're checking on this epidural, making sure that the epidural is working. If there's any concerns about fetal heart rate tracings, again, we want to reevaluate how the epidural catheter is functioning um, in anticipation of the need to convert to a surgical anesthetic. And ultimately, um, prevention is the most important um, thing that we can do for these patients. And if we do have a poorly working catheter, um, then we need to replace that. And, you know, studies show anywhere between 5 and 10% of epidurals should be, um, are needed to replace, to be replaced during, um, during labor. So um, in addition, um, if we are um, pulling a functioning labor epidural, um, we're subjecting the patient to an additional neuraxial technique. And there are possible complications such as an inadvertent accidental dural puncture, which could increase the patient's risk for developing a postural puncture headache. And over the past few years, we have definitely, um, you know, a lot of studies really looked at the immediate risks for PDPH, but more and more studies are looking at the long-term risks of chronic headache, chronic backache, um, chronic pain in patients who experience an accidental dural puncture. Um, and then as uh, Dr. Hofkamp had mentioned, it, sometimes you pull a perfectly functioning epidural and then you can't, <laughs> you can't get another technique. And so in his study, uh, or in our study together, we had uh, three patients, so 2.4% of patients where a new neuroaxial technique was unable to be obtained. And so we really, you know, have to be aware of that. And I've had that before where you have a patient who you were able to get something before and whether, you know, you think that the CSF coming back might actually be the epidural uh, solution that's going. And so it can always be a little bit trickier the uh, second time you're going into a patient's back. So um, I also think the other thing that we need to consider is when we are using an epidural, uh, labor epidural for cesarean delivery, it's incredibly important how we dose our epidural for uh, and which medications we use. So there was a um, Hilliard and colleagues did a meta-analysis of 11 randomized controlled trials examining the type of local anesthetic used to top up a labor epidural analgesia. And they did not include chloroprocaine, but they compared bupivacaine, ropivacaine, levobupivacaine, and lidocaine with epinephrine. And they found that lidocaine with epinephrine resulted in the fastest onset of sensory block. Fentanyl um, included in that, um, in which studies included fentanyl, further hastened the block onset. And um, interesting enough, lidocaine had a trend toward lower need for intraoperative supplementation. And here in the U.S., that's mostly what um, we use is lidocaine um, as our main local anesthetic for conversion of labor epidural to surgical um, anesthesia. And in my practice, I use lidocaine with epinephrine and bicarb and fentanyl. So the epinephrine is incredibly important. It helps increase the density of our anesthetic, but also improves the safety by preventing systemic toxicity. So adding the epinephrine can slow the rate of absorption, reduce our peak plasma levels. And I mean, anesthesia residents memorize, you know, the, you know, seven milligrams versus 4.5 milligrams per kilo as our kind of toxic levels um, when epinephrine is um, added to um, lidocaine. So um, bicarbonate, um, the alkalization increases the speed of onset and also improves the quality of the block. And then adding fentanyl improves the block quality as well as um, helps with visceral uh, stimulation. And so if you are in a practice where you're not adding these adjuncts to your lidocaine for cesarean delivery, then um, and you don't think that the uh, epidurals are working very well, then this is something to definitely consider. What are, what are you adding? Because lidocaine alone oftentimes is not going to be uh, provide a good anesthetic for you. Now, of course, if we're in a, a situation where it's a more emergent delivery, then 3% to a chlor chloroprocaine with bicarb is going to um, provide very good anesthesia, a nice dense block, fast onset, 
downside is that it um, wears off quickly. And so then you have to redose with lidocaine. And fortunately, just recently published in ANA this year, um, Lee and colleagues gave us additional reassur reassurance that chloroprocaine is fine in the setting of epidural morphine, um, as long as we are um, following our chloroprocaine with some lidocaine to extend our block. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Sharp. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly... I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good, but the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back. And then um, just as Dr. Halfcamp had mentioned, um, one of the things that we really need to think about and be concerned about is the safety when we're pulling an epidural and doing another technique of the risk of a high spinal. So if we look back at the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology SCORE project, um, they looked at 250,000 obstetric anesthetics, and they found an incidence of high neuraxial block was about one in 4,000. If you look at the numbers, 25 um, of 58, so about 40% were from spinals, and 12 of these 23 spinals, about 50% were from spinal placement after a failed epidural anesthetic. So more than 25% of all high neuraxial blocks and greater than 50% of high spinals in the study occurred in this context. Um, in the study that um, Mike and I did together, we talked about the one high block. And then the South Korean study that he mentioned, they also had one high block in the patients that were randomized to um, get the epidural pulled and have the um, spinal after that. And then if you look at both pros, there's a whole bunch of studies that have really evaluated the incidence of high spinal and both prospective and retrospective studies have shown an, an incidence of high spinal between one and 11%. And it's not like you're seeing um, just the retrospective studies on one end of the spectrum and the prospective studies on the other. You'll see both prospective and retrospective studies showing, um, you know, between that spectrum. And then, you know, with your follow-up questions with Dr. Hofkamp asking about dosing and things like that, I think that's one of the hardest things. When you pull that working epidural and then you have to load your spine, you know, place the spinal, I find, you know, what dose do you give? And the dosing, I think, can be really challenging. You have to consider the time since the last epidural bolus, um, especially in the settings of um, programmed intermittent epidural boluses that we're using. We're not really using continuous infusions often. Um, so... A lot of people will reduce their dose, but then you risk an inadequate block. And studies will even show that, you know, a low dose can get you an adequate block to start the surgery, but it's not going to be long enough to work for the entire case. However, using a standard dose can um, risk your high spinal. So, 
you can the, you have three options for your dose. You can either get it just right, or it's going to be too too much or too little. And to what dose gets you there is uh, just as uh, Dr. Hofkamp had mentioned, is dependent on um, the patient and not the dose. So, in conclusion, I think a well-functioning epidural should be utilized for cesarean delivery. It's important that we recognize early a failed epidural catheter and um, be able to replace that while the patient's still in labor. But if we have an epidural that's working well, that isn't requiring bolus, um, we shouldn't pull it and we shouldn't subject our patients to an unnecessary procedure. Thank you, Emily. So my question for you is, let's say that you have an epidural, seems like it's working well, and now they've got to go to C-section, you bolus it, and they start, and it's not happening. She's having too much pain. So now is your only option to intubate and do general anesthesia, or would you at that point actually consider, if you, if you could, based on where they, you know, what was going on with the baby and the surgery, could you, would you consider sitting up or, lay, or rolling over and doing a spinal at that point? So I have, um, if they like at incision, just like very beginning of the case, I have actually sat a patient up with the drape still on, just straight up onto the bed, and have done uh, another neuraxial anesthetic on them. Um, that I can say the number of times on one hand how many times I've done that, um, because usually I find when I have a patient who we load an epidural, we usually do pretty well and we're able to get through incision and sometimes even baby. But a lot of times, like after delivery, of the baby, a lot of times with uterine exteriorization, which is something that we could do a whole discussion on <laughs> and about it's um, problems with intraoperative pain. Um, that's where you really start to um, cause get into problems is when um, you're in the middle of surgery and that's really not an option when the abdomen is open to sit the patient up. So sometimes it might just be a, a little bit of discomfort that can be treated with some IV um, medications. Uh, we previously talked in the podcast about fentanyl, uh, dexmedetomidine, um, some people will use ketamine or midazolam, um, but fentanyl and dexmedetomidine are the two that I prefer. Some people use nitrous, um, but for the most part, if the woman is having severe pain, um, then a conversion to a general anesthetic. Sometimes I think about, you know, like, you know, especially if I've used chloroprocaine, you know, should I redose the catheter? Did I remember to add the fentanyl? Because sometimes when things are emergent, you're kind of forgetting to add some of the adjuncts. Um, and so I also have to kind of rethink. But the most important thing is if a patient is having pain, um, ask the surgeons to stop, talk with the patient, let her know the plan, reassure her. And then, you know, even if I'm going to try an adjunct, I always let her know right from the beginning, if this is too much we're going to go to sleep. And then every time we're, we're reassessing that, I always offer that option because I don't want this patient to look back at this, her delivery and really um, think about the pain that she had and not the um, delivery of her child. Right. And if you're going to try in those rare instances where you've bolusted, they make incisions, it's not working, you're going to try a spinal, you then would reduce your dose. Goodness. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, that's a really tricky situation. Um, so if I am able to do this before, so say I've loaded the epidural, it doesn't work. We haven't made incision yet and baby's doing well. I'll do just as Dr. Hofkamp does, where I will do a reduced dose spinal and a combined spinal epidural. So then I can use that epidural. In the situation where I'm under the drapes, I'm probably going to do a spinal and then pray that it doesn't go high and, um, or, you know, if I'm concerned, you know, just go off to sleep. But yep. um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be attempting a CSC placement under the drapes. <laughs> yep, fair enough. Okay, great. Mike, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Do you have any rebuttal for what Emily has said? I have several. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I want to state that I am in complete agreement with Dr. Sharp that we should be meticulously managing these labor epidural catheters. We should be checking up on them. We should be going to the bedside, making sure they're working. We should have a low threshold to replace them if they're not working. And there's this Goldilocks zone, I call it, of 5 to 10% of catheter replacement. If you're less than 5%, you're probably not checking them frequently and, is, and, and well enough to recognize your failures. If you're replacing more than 10%, you're probably not doing a good job either putting them in the first place or maintain them. So yes, I, I agree completely, Dr. Sharp, we should be doing those things for the sake of labor analgesia. Now, 
surgical anesthesia is a completely different uh, proposition than labor analgesia. And going back to our initial discussion, we've had this dichotomous thinking in obstetric anesthesia that the outcomes for cesarean delivery anesthesia are either you had general anesthesia or you did not. And we're only beginning to scratch the tip of the iceberg as far as this middle outcome where you didn't go to sleep, but the patient was incredibly uncomfortable. And so up until now, we have called those situations successes. Well, you know what? Surgery hurts. It's really dangerous to go off to sleep. So if they're uncomfortable, you know, that's not great, but it's okay. You know, we can deal with that. And so I propose that the standard of care is wrong. I know that's kind of blasphemous to say it. Uh, we used to think that the sun revolves around the earth. People were burned at the stake for it. We used to think that stress caused stomach ulcers before someone won the Nobel Prize for discovering Helicobacter pylori. And I think that when we get better evidence, we will show that spinal anesthesia after epidural, uh, after you withdraw an epidural, is a superior anesthetic technique overall. Uh, when you look at the comfort of the patient who's undergoing the procedure, and I think additional modalities like Dr. Greenberg's block dense, density machine is going to also provide additional evidence. I'll also speak to the lidocaine dosing. That that's definitely a point well taken. Uh, in my practice, we uh, we don't use fentanyl in our epidural infusions. When someone comes to the operating room in a non-crash situation, we will give 100 mics of fentanyl uh, through the epidural, and then we'll chase it with lidocaine. And I I will agree that perhaps uh, lidocaine with bicarbonate, lidocaine with epinephrine, might provide superior analgesia compared to lidocaine alone. In fact, I'm sure the evidence shows that it does. I don't think that lidocaine with these adjuncts is going to provide superior analgesia compared to withdrawing the catheter completely and doing a spinal anesthetic. Uh, and the whole high spinal incidence, uh, there is no medical procedure that we do that is risk-free. And I think that you look at the number needed to treat versus the number needed to harm. And so when you look at, um, at the study, uh, we did, um, you know, it didn't take that many. The odds ratio was 4.3 to, uh, to have pain free analgesia according to our criteria. And so I think that it didn't take many, uh, catheters to be completely withdraw, uh, withdrawn to produce a benefit, and the risk was was relatively low with on the order of uh, 1 to 124. I think the true incidence is probably about 1 in 150, and I think that the, the ability to secure the airway should also probably be part of the calculus and whether or not you do this technique. If someone has a horrible appearing airway, you know, maybe you want to slowly activate it and do the general anesthetic with securing the airway on your own terms rather than as a reactionary uh, procedure and, and extremis. And so I, I am, in summary, unmoved by Dr. Sharp's uh, con, and uh, I, re I invite her for rebuttal of my rebuttal. <laughs> Emily, what do you think? I definitely don't think we're gonna uh, we're going to meet in the middle on this one, and that's okay. Um, but I, you know, I I think the analogy of the sun going around the earth and the <laughs> and this topic are a little extreme. <laughs> um, but I do I do think that um, more information is needed about intraoperative pain, and I am looking forward. Um, to the collaboration um, by the SOAP Research Network um, that the Stanford group, uh, Dr. O'Carroll, is going to be leading a pros 
uh, you know, prospective uh, multi-center study, really trying to figure out what the incidence of intraoperative pain is, and then really looking at those patients who have intraoperative pain and look a little bit more at what those uh, those factors are. Because I think it, it, we need to understand it better. And a lot of the studies are really looking at scheduled cesarean delivery. And in these intrapartum C-sections, we do, do need to know it better. Um, but I just, it's hard for me to... Um, Take, take care, you know, to, to remove an epidural that's been working and that works really well for cesarean delivery. And um, I, I don't have a lot of uh, well-formed rebuttals to you, Dr. Hofkamp, other than um, I look forward to the, rec- you know, for more people investigating this and also looking at the, um, you know, not just our immediate outcomes, but what, how does this impact patients' quality of recovery? Um, qualitatively, like, you know, what are women's experiences? And I think those things are really important. And if this, if the data comes um, and tells me that I need to start doing more, um, pulling my, my working epidurals and doing a spinal, then I, I will, because I really believe in the importance of a good um, experience for our patients. And I want them to look back at their delivery, um, focus on, you know, meeting their baby for the first time and not focus on the pain that they had. But I do think um, I, I, do, I do think that we really do get good anesthetic, and um, there's a reason why I've, I recommend patients who are at risk for C-section um, of getting that epidural in early. Now, if I, I know I'm going back for a C-section right now, like, am I going to do an epidural? No, I'm going to do a spinal because I agree with you. A spinal is my my first choice. But if I already have um, an, an epidural in place, I'm not going to do a second procedure because there is always risk of doing a second procedure. There's a risk of doing the first procedure, um, but we're increasing our risk doing a second one. Mike, any last words? Yes, I, I think I have the, the, the ultimate rebuttal that you know can't be rebutted because it's an opinion. So the lead author of the study that Dr. Sharp and I did that had the comparison between removing the epidural catheter, activating it, she was, she's a rising CA3. She's going to be one of our chief residents. She just had a baby in March. And so she was during we, the write-up of this manuscript and the peer review process, she was very pregnant. And I would work with her and we'd talk about the manuscript. And I'd say, Bailey, I said, you are a CA3 or CA2, rising CA3. You've done a whole bunch of cesarean deliveries already. If it were you and you were laboring and you had a perfectly functioning labor epidural, what would you want for yourself if you had to have an unscheduled intrapartum cesarean delivery for some non-urgent indication like failure to progress? Uh, and she said, without a doubt, she would want that labor epidural with completely withdrawn and a new neuraxial technique uh, to be performed. And so that's, that's her opinion. Perhaps that's uh, confounded by the fact that maybe we could have a better practice in activating our labor epidurals. But from her perspective, as a pregnant patient, she would want, and her doing the study, collecting all the data, right at the manuscript, she would want her catheter to be removed. I will I'll end my rebuttal of rebuttal of rebuttal by agreeing with Dr. Sharp that I can't, we, we can't say definitively one way or the other just yet, that we need more data. Uh, the Stanford study is going to show a bunch more. Hopefully, there'll be other data as well so we can make a more informed decision. Great. All right, Emily, last words before we move on? You're happy? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that people need to evaluate their practice and do what works well with their surgeons, with their patients, and with the resources that they have. And ultimately, we need to focus on what our patients um, want. We need to listen to them and um, and and focus on our, you know, patient satisfaction and patient safety. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. This was a very enlightening debate, a lot of good learning on both sides. And uh, I join you in looking forward to new data to come in the years ahead. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Emily, let's start with you. What would you recommend the audience check out? So I just finished reading yesterday. <laughs> I had a different one until I finished this book yesterday. Um, but it's called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Um, it was just published this year by Kate Zernica. 
Um, and she was actually the uh, reporter for the Boston Globe that um, reported this study, uh, or the, reported with the MIT um, admitted to discriminate against women all the way back in 1999. And then she has gone through and written this entire uh, book. But basically, she starts um, back in the 1960s um, when, uh, at the beginning of Nancy Hopkins' uh, career, she's a, a biologist and um, goes through and kind of talks about her career and her being a mentor of uh, James Watson from Watson and Crick and all the way through her um, getting her doctorate, her postdoc and, you know, get coming on staff, um, trying to get tenure in MIT. And she outlines um, not only Dr. Hopkins, but many other prominent um, scientists who um, really, they just, she documents the difficulties and that they encountered in their careers. And they initially just thought this is you know, like science is a meritocracy and this, you know, this is fine. But then when they really look back at it, they realize that there was gender discrimination that they were experiencing. And so it's a fascinating look at the history of science and also the history of women in science and what they have had to go through. And I think it's just really educational for everyone to um, understand what women had to go through and what has been done um, to kind of create the situations where we are today. So I highly recommend it um, as a, you know, as a woman and as a scientist, I think it was just fascinating on many accounts. That's great. Thanks for recommending it. All right, Mike, how about you? So there's this book called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life by a gentleman named Luke Burgess. He was, it was published in 2021. I was slow to discover it, but uh, I have read, I haven't read all of it. I've read more than half. And the premise of the book is that there are a lot of things in life and society that we value and desire simply for the fact that other people desire it. And this seems very intuitive, but sometimes we chase things that we think we want, but we really don't want them. And the author gives a great example about how he had this startup and it was going to be acquired by Zappos. And he got to the 11th hour in 2008 and they were about to sign all the agreements for him to make $100 million and it was everything that he had worked for for his startup. And then with the looming financial crisis in 2008, all of a sudden, with no notice, the deal was dropped, and he was in shock. And he went home that night, and he had an unexpected feeling, and that feeling was relief. And so it was completely unexpected to him that he had chased this thing for so long, and not getting it provided relief, because in the end, that's not what really he wanted. And so that sets up the book to talk about mimetic desire and how we desire things. And I think if you look at our lives and anesthesia, academics, there are certain things that people aspire to, aspire to be program director, aspire to be chair, aspire to be dean, CMO. And you look at those things and you think, wow, that would be great to have those things because so many other people want it. But then sometimes you talk to these people who have those things and they're unguarded moments, and they're like the most miserable people you've ever seen. So I think it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Sounds awesome. Thanks, Mike. And I'm going to recommend a book um, in honor of uh, the uh, recent big you know, horse races of the year, obviously the Kentucky Derby a few weeks ago, and then the Preakness here in Baltimore this past weekend. Uh, and I recognize there's a lot of controversy and, and uh, around these races and the way horses are treated, but this book is called Horse, and it's by Geraldine Brooks. I don't think I've recommended this before, though I may have, but it's a really, really great book. It's incredibly well written and it really is delves into the history of horse racing way back. It's a, it's a fiction book, but it's very based in history. And they talk a lot about the history back, um, pre-Civil War and through the Civil War of what horse racing was like, how it changed and what it's like to train horses and, and kind of some of the real um, incredible horse trainers in history and some of the amazing horses in history um, and how uh, how that kind of all developed. So it's really, really interesting. 
And even if you, I know nothing about horse racing. I, I'm no expert and I don't follow it. And I hardly ever watch these races. I only watch the Kentucky Derby because someone was having a party and I did not watch the Preakness, but I thought this book was fascinating. So even if you have no interest or, or haven't read it, the book is so well-written that it's just a story worth reading about, even if you don't have interest in horse racing. So check it out, Horse by Geraldine Brooks. All right, Mike and Emily, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us, Jed. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.